Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Rav Mike Feuer on Parashat Noach. Did you know that Pardes from Jerusalem is now available on Spotify? Follow us there for our weekly parasha episodes. Or you can visit elmod.pardes.org for other great digital content. I always find Parshat Noach a rich tapestry of stories, somewhat overwhelming in fact because there are so many there and they can all be read in multiple ways. This is always the point in my learning of Sefer Breshit of Genesis that I just feel grateful there'll be another chance to see this stuff in the year to come. We're going to have to take a lifetime to explore all the angles, but what speaks to me right now this particular time around the wheel, as it were, is the look at Noah as a retelling of the story of creation. It's a retelling which is particularly interesting because it seems to come about in reverse. When we open up the book of Genesis, as hopefully everybody did last week, we're presented with a sense of an orderly universe. Each element of creation has its day. Things are neatly divided into dark light, land, sea, fish, and fowl. There's almost a power and even comfort to the hierarchical structure, which is described in the first chapter. It's a picture that culminates with chaos pushed well out to the margins and humanity standing firmly on the dry land on top of the animal kingdom. And of course, if you notice, it's all good. Now, I'm well aware that anyone who reads the news these days might see the phrase as in God saw that it was all good, which is really the backbeat to that first chapter of creation, as a bit Pollyanna. And I wonder, then, if you find this line from our Parsha this week just a bit more resonant. It's Breshit, Genesis 6, 12. Right? God saw the land. There's that familiar God looking and seeing. And it was corrupt. Apparently, only 10 generations after Adam, the earth wasn't so good-looking anymore. And if we take a close examination at what follows upon this judgment, it looks an awful lot like a rollback of that whole first chapter. The waters, which had been pushed back to expose the dry land, are unleashed, destroying all the beauty and diversity of creation as they rise. I mean, just listen to the details of the description for a minute, and if you want to take some time, compare them Compare the verses I'll cite in the source sheet to those in the first chapter of Breshit to see the specificity of this sort of deconstruction of the first chapter. And all flesh that stirred on earth perished. Birds, cattle, beasts, everything. All that had nishmat ruach chaim, that breath of life. Anything which was on dry land dies. Vimach all existence on earth was blotted out. Man, cattle, creeping things, etc. Only Noach was left and those who were with him in the ark. And it's that last line which really drives it home for me. Only Noach and those with him are left. It's the complete inversion of the first chapter. We're no longer looking at an orderly creation crowned by humanity boldly conquering the land. In this story, chaos reigns. 
everything is darkness and the deep. All that's left of that hopeful project is a wooden box, 300 amot by 50 amot, floating like a chip on the stormy waters with the remains of creations huddled fearfully inside. It, in fact, might feel a lot more like the world in which we live as opposed to the one described in chapter 1. But what we have to ask is, in our narrative, how did it come to this? Well, fortunately, we somewhat already answered that question back with the quote from Breshit 6.6. The earth became corrupt for God, and the earth was filled with lawlessness, is the way this translator treated the word Hamas. Now, that sounds bad, but it's also very general. What exactly is this corruption and lawlessness all about? If you open up the classic commentators and the Midrashim, you'll get many answers, but they all basically revolve around the same idea. It was a breaking of boundaries. Rashi says it very clearly. But Tishachet, he says, Tishachet, this corruption is Lashon Erva Zara. It's the language of immorality, sexual immorality in particular, and idolatry. Right? Kimon Pen Tishchatun, right? He gives his, uh, his, quotes his sources there, right? Lest you deal corruptly, right? Right? Because all of the flesh of the world sort of destroyed its way. Then he says, that lawlessness was specifically, according to Rashi, robbery, meaning what's the ultimate breakdown in civil society when you can't respect a person's possession of what is really theirs. Now, this is a much-discussed point, and I'm actually going to leave it to others to explore. I'm more interested, actually, in a boundary which was removed by God in the wake of the flood than those which were crossed in order to bring it about. Because if we fast-forward past all the drama of going into the ark, the flood, the raven, the doves, the olive branch, a story that I'm betting that most people listening already know, right to the end of Breshit chapter 9, actually, I should say, to the beginning of Rashid chapter 9, sorry, we find another parallel with the original story of creation, the one with a notable discrepancy. It says there, God blessed Noach and his children, his sons, and said to them, Be fertile, increase, and fill the land. We heard this word for word given to Adam and Chava. Then it says, right, Your fear and dread shall be upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky, everything on the earth, all the fish, etc., etc. Every creature that lives shall be yours to eat. As with the green grasses, I give you all these. Now that last line is actually something new. And it represents, in my eyes, a fundamental shift in the human relationship to creation. And therefore, it deserves some thought. Every creature that lives shall be yours to eat. And like I said, this is a boundary which was removed by God in the wake of the flood as opposed to one which was broken and brought it about. And back in chapter 1, what we were told was the following. God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant upon the earth, every tree that has seed-bearing fruit, they shall be yours for food. And to all the animals on the land, all the birds of the sky, everything that creeps on earth in which there is breath of life, I give all the green plants for food. And Rashi points out that what God is doing there is equating the cattle and the beasts to humanity, connecting them through the food which they were permitted to eat. Adam and Chava, according to Rashi, and he's following in the footsteps of the Gemara in Sanhedrin, 
Adam and Chava were not permitted to kill any animal to eat its flesh. They were only able to take from the fruit of the earth. So it's a beautiful image of harmony in the in Gan Eden, in the Garden of Eden. But why the sudden change after the flood? Why was it so important to give Noah and his descendants permission to now kill animals, to eat meat in this post-flood world? And I think actually the key to understanding it lies in the next few lines of chapter 9 because the chapter goes on and says that first God warns Noah that despite this new loosening of the boundaries of creation, the prohibition against consuming blood still applies. But then comes what seems to be a non sequitur, one which once again takes us back to chapter 1. It says, right? But your own lifeblood I will require a reckoning. I will require it of every beast of man. I will require a reckoning for human life, right? For Of every man, for that of his fellow man. Don't kill one another, says God. Whoever shuds, I want to say it, say it in Hebrew because it's so beautiful, shofich dama adam adam damo yishafich, right? Whoever sheds the blood of man by man, his blood shall be shed. Ki b'tzelem Elohim asat adam. Because in God's image, God made man. Now, it's a powerful reattachment to that original purpose of creation. But my question is, what's the connection between eating animals and this sacred nature of human life? How does the new permission to shed the blood of animals reinforce the fact that humanity was created in the image of God? And in order to try to dig a little bit deeper into the message here and and what it is actually happened to the world in the wake of the flood, I want to take a brief look at Rav Avram Yitzchak Cohen Cook's Messianic Vegetarian Vision. Because when Rav Cook looked at the first chapter of creation, it was no accident in his mind that the relationship established between humanity and the animals was one which contained more parity than it did after the flood. Now you might say, but we were given to rule over them, and doesn't rule include doing whatever you want to your subjects? Well, this is what Rob Cook has to say in response. There's no doubt in the mind of any enlightened thinker that the dominion spoken of in the Torah, meaning they'll have dominion over the fish of the sea, etc., cannot refer to the dominion of a tyrannical ruler who treats both subjects and servants cruelly in order to satisfy his personal arbitrary desires. It's unthinkable, says Ralph Cook, that there should be an institution of servitude as ugly as that, stamped with an eternal seal in the world of a God who is good to all, whose compassion extends to all creatures. As it says, chesed olam yibaneh, the world is built by loving kindness. And this quote, powerful as it is, begs to question, what is the right relationship between humanity and the animal world? And what happened to change it? What happened was a breakdown of boundaries. That's clear. That moral descent, driven by a loss of standards, resulted in the flood. And the response, for some reason, was a shift in the relationship between humanity and the animal world. Now, to look at that ideal before we get into the reality... It's worth it to recall a very important statement actually from the second chapter of Breshid, where God takes the first man, he takes Adam, and he puts him in the garden, to till and to tend, to serve 
and to guard. Meaning, in Rav Cook's eyes, the model of dominance, of dominion, which is presented in the first chapter, is not only tempered, but it's explained by the role which Adam is given in the second. Man is meant to cultivate creation, not simply to dominate it. Now, you might then say that when Noah got out of the ark, he does, by the way, of course, begin to cultivate the land right away, that when he got out, that perhaps what he should have done is gone right back to that Edenic ideal. But apparently, Rav Cook doesn't see it as so, because that ideal of every seed-bearing plant, every tree shall be yours for food, which connected humanity intimately to the animals in the fact that we shared our source of sustenance, wasn't just impossible to attain in the post-flood reality. It was dangerous to try. Because he says that if the prohibition of killing animals was made known as a religious and moral pronouncement, as he calls it, meaning if God had now reinforced what had been really, what let's call it the initial natural fabric of creation, by commanding Noah to continue on that path, right? Then, when the animal-like craving to eat meat became overpowering, it would make no distinction between the flesh of human beings and the flesh of animals. It's dramatic quote. I actually gave you the entire thing in the source sheet. I recommend you read it in full. But what Cook is saying is that the loss of boundaries which led to the flood was so profound that humanity lost the distinction between ourselves and the animals. And in doing so, if we had been given the permission, sorry, if we had been withheld the permission to eat meat, we would have seen ourselves like the animals and begun to prey on one another in a literal sense, beyond the moral sense in which we had already been doing. In other words, the permission to eat meat was meant to lift us up from the animal state in order to reinforce our humanity. And in that sense, it was a concession to our moral weakness, or what we might say, our need for a moral evolution. It was necessary, in fact, due to our limited moral capacity, something which is as true in our day as it's ever been. People love to point out the fact that many of the Nazis were vegetarians. Now, I should say at this point that I called Rav Cook's vegetarian vision a messianic ideal. He never advocated for vegetarianism as a practical approach to life. And in fact, the students of his students say that he deliberately ate meat on Shabbat in order to avoid people drawing that conclusion from his very behaviors because Rob Cook recognized that humanity's ability to love, to care, to be challenged on the moral plane finds an outlet much more easily in animals than it does in our fellow human beings. They're simply a lot easier to love sometimes. So he says, if the obligation of righteousness with regard to animals were established as a practice it would greatly hinder both the elevation of the spirit of human uprightness and the noble ideals which that elevation has engendered. He goes on to say, though, that this has to be an evolutionary process. To impose, he says, the obligation of uprightness toward animals upon humanity as a matter of law would have had an effect which is completely opposite from the intent. The end result would be the debasement of humanity to the level of the animals, meaning there were two pieces to the permission which, were, which was given to Noah. One was simply, you don't put an edict upon humanity which we simply can't hold. We weren't upholding 
the, ide the Edenic ideal, and to continue to try to enforce it would have caused us only to sink further. The other one was that you separate humanity from the animals by saying they are food and we are friends. And that allows us to get some distance from a world which Ralph Cook characterizes as comprised solely of their stomachs and physical gratification of animal desire. And those two together will make it clear to us what it means to be human. You know, but of course, this isn't the ideal. And I'd like to believe even in our day with all its troubles, we've come a long way from Noah. True, we're still plagued by widespread failures to value human life, let's call it. We still live in a world in which, quote, human morality is contingent upon weakness. Humanity's animal-like self-love has the potential to take complete control until all laws of justice and uprightness are destroyed, until the glory that is morality becomes a mere game. This was Rav Cook's fear that post-flood, if God had not drawn a hard and fast distinction between humanity and the animals, we wouldn't have done our task of of the Olushamra to till and to tend, to cultivate a higher nature within the animals to draw them closer to us, but we would have rather been drawn down by our desires toward them. You know, so we're not there yet, I admit it. Nonetheless, just like Noah coming out of the ark, we need a vision of what it is we're actually striving to achieve. I mean, after God made clear that in order to reinforce the divine image within humanity, it was necessary to lower the animals, Noah was given a new covenant. If you just look there in Breshit, chapter 9, once again, a little bit beyond the description of humanities being created in the image of God, it says, right? I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring to come, and with every living thing, birds, cattle, etc., everything that come out of the ark, every living thing on the earth, and once again, it uses this word of brit, vakimoti et briti etchem, right? I maintain my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. So it's a new world with a new covenant. And humanity and the animals are just like in Eden, in it together. But unlike in Eden, in order for morality to take root truly within human society, we had to be given a permission which was contingent upon our weakness as opposed to an ideal toward which we should strive. But fortunately, we have a promise of another covenant yet to come. Now is not the time, but I want you to know that Rav Cook's vision is beyond this idea that we don't eat meat. He sees the task of humanity as a cultivation of consciousness throughout all creation. And the animals whom he calls our little brothers are going to be the primary beneficiaries of it. It's why, it's how he understands that vision of Isaiah of the lion laying down with the lamb and the viper that won't hurt the child playing by its pit. Those aren't just miraculous acts of salvation, God on high pulling the strings. They'll be a product of a human moral evolution where we abandon our conflicts with one another so much so that it frees our energies up to heal our relationship with the earth as a whole. And once that happens, like I said, we have a promise of another covenant yet to come. One that's going to be a fulfillment of how Rav Cook understood that relationship with the animal kingdom. And so he says, when humanity arrives at its goal of happiness and complete freedom, when it reaches that high peak of wholeness, which is the pure knowledge of God and the sanctification of life, 
Then human beings will recognize their relationship with all the animals who are their companions in creation, and they will no longer be in need of the sort of extenuating concessions like the Torah speaks only of the evil inclination. Rather, they'll walk the path of absolute good. And I'll close with his quote from Hosea, chapter 220. I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the creeping things of the ground. I will also banish bow, sore, and war from the land. Let it be soon. Let it be now. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcast today. Be sure to visit us on Spotify, where you can subscribe to any of our other podcast channels, or visit us at elmod.pardes.org. Thanks for listening.